This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this witness. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. I'm Anna Kredovich, one of the researchers for the Wigs. On this episode, the Wigs are back into some complex black letter law. First up is an examination of the details of a new bill currently before the New South Wales State Parliament, which would give police sweeping new investigative powers in relation to people with drug supply convictions, a legitimate response to a social problem or another incursion into fundamental human rights. Next up is a discussion of another proposed law that will guide criminal courts as to how to take into account harm to a fetus occasioned during criminal offending, reasonable recognition of harm or a stalking horse for the right to life lobby. Lastly, the Whigs delve into a recent Federal Court of Australia decision that examines the complicated question of whether the Commonwealth can detain proven refugees who have been refused visas on character grounds. So stay tuned if any of those tickle your fancy and let's take it away, Wigs. Okay, welcome to the Wigs, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the only podcast featuring practicing barristers talking shop in our new digs, which you can't see, but it's fantastic to be recording in the ch- in black chambers. Again, am I allowed to say that on the show? Yeah, absolutely. What, a, fan- what a fantastic uh, setup we have here. I'm just going to clear my throat and not edit that out. Can I introduce the Wigs themselves? Um, Mr. Newlywed, Emmanuel Kokosherian. Congratulations to you, sir. Thank you very much. Hi, Jim. What a fantastic... uh, 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 Just congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Felicity Graham. The great Felicity Graham. I didn't recognise you outside of the wig. No, well, you know, should we edit that bit out? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But obviously not. She's getting closer to getting married. Thanks for ruining that, Steve. I will have to edit that. (laughs) Steve. (laughs) (laughs) What a... <laughs> All right. Um, it's been too long. Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to, um, you know, get more together so that we can whip Steve with these microphone cords. Finally, straight out of Western Plains, <laughs> the Deputy Mayor himself. Good to be here, guys. Hello. I really missed this. Mate, we mm. missed you. And we've got a lot of fun things to hear from all three of you. Uh, post show. But until then, there is some serious law to be discussed. And uh, these these people in front of me are the ones to do it. And we are kicking off tonight with Mr. Emmanuel Kirksharian. Thanks, Jim. Can Hi, you please take morning. it away? Um, so one of the things I've been asked to do, I'm, I'm going to talk about the drug supply prohibition order pilot scheme bill 2020. Uh, but one of the things I've, I've been invited to do by several people is sort of talk about law reform and how those things actually come into bills. So I thought I might just touch on that as I go through this topic. Please. So one of the things that the bureaucracy does, the state bureaucracy does, and the Commonwealth does indeed, is they keep a book of election commitments made by the main political parties, and they write them all down. So when you say something, that's an election commitment, and it has some status in government. Um, so upon election, that, that's then settled by Cabinet and goes out to all of the agencies and there's a tracking of, you know, have you met your election commitment? And, of course, some of them are quietly dropped and others are actually made up. Mm -hmm. 
One of the commitments made in 2019 by the incumbent government in New South Wales was something called drug supply prohibition orders. Okay. Um, and it was billed as new powers to take on drug dealers. Apparently our police weren't doing a very good job of it, although that's not the way that it was pitched. Um, <laughs> it was because they need new powers. Anyway, um, they... So what happened was on, on the 22nd of October of this year, pursuant to a notice of motion given two days prior, the government introduced the Drug Supply Prohibition Order Pilot Scheme Bill. On the 22nd of October 2020, it was introduced. It was read for a first time. Um, and that's an old-fashioned terminology. And what actually used to happen was the bills would be read by the clerk of the parliament mm. Because, one, people couldn't read, and two, there was no photocopy machine. Hmm. So um, it was read. These days the clerk doesn't read the whole bill. It just reads out the long title. Um, and then it was ordered to be printed, so it goes up on the website these days is what that means. And then it was read a second time, which means, again, it's not actually read, but what happens is a Member of Parliament gives a speech setting out what the bill was. The purposive approach... That Parliament has to the law that they want to change, right? Well, they try and tell you what they're about to tell you. Okay. Right? So what they try and do is, and often, um, so I know because I used to work in the Attorney General's Department and have written several second reading speeches. Okay. It's written by a person generally somewhere between age 25 and 40. Okay. It sets out what their minister's going to say about what the bill's meant to act like. Sometimes they're a little bit cheeky, so the text of the bill doesn't say what the second reading speech says. Um, and it's there notionally to help... Uh, well, I mean, theoretically it's there so the Parliament knows what the hell it's doing, um, but also to help courts if there's some difficulty in figuring out what the Act is means they have recourse to these things. Yeah. So, and presumably it's also to alert the public through any press who might be there or public who are watching like what's going on in parliament what they're debating what they're putting forward well surprisingly not and the reason i say that is because when you put up a bill minute which is the the minute that goes to a committee of cabinet that authorizes the bill and indeed when you put up a cabinet minute you have to attach various things to it including a press release so they deal in every almost every step that cabinet takes including putting out bills, there's already a press release that the bureaucrats have drafted. Often it's amended by the staffers um, to sort of become a little bit more political than the way. Uh, but the second reading speeches, I mean, these days they're not even read half the time, they're just incorporated. Um, if there's a good soundbite that might be reported, then, then they sort of played out. But anyway... But they have to be documented, right? I mean, the courts have to have something to refer to. There has to be a second reading there. Well, they don't have to. Oh, okay. I mean, and... and well, it can just be tabled or something. It can just well, be tabled. it can be just... No, no, I mean, it can be tabled. But in, in terms of... It used to be... There used to be a quite a reluctance to turn to secondary material. Because yeah. Parliament says what it says in the Act. Yeah. Why do you need other words? If they want to say those words, they should say it. Not just have the government, the executive government, say, hey, this is what we want the law to be. Or some 25-year-old staffer. Quite. Mm. Yeah, saying what they want the law to be. Um, and interpretation has sort of moved away from this idea that... You know how there, there was... There, it's often talked about, like, 
the intention of the parliament as if it's some um, shared belief among the legislators. Whereas it's kind of moving away from that, isn't it? And it's more about, you know, what do the words mean in the context of accepted interpretations, accepted rights and traditions and so forth. And like the this whole idea, context of the and act. And the whole context of the act and the purpose. Mm-hmm. Like this idea that parliamentarians necessarily share some common intent that might be expressed through the reading speech. It's sort of pretty fallacious a lot of the time, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And I, I mean... And unfortunately, I think it sticks its head out when you least want it, so that when there's a decision that might be a bit politically unpalatable, judges might recourse to that sort of thing to to rule the right way, whatever that may be. Um, Anyway, that's all to say that there's this thing called a drug supply prohibition order that is coming to a place near you soon. Um, near me particularly. Near you in particular <laughs> soon. Um, by which I mean it's a pilot scheme. So it will be run in Bankstown, um, in the following local area commands. Bankstown, <clears throat> Coffs, Harbour, Hunter Valley and Arana, which is Dubbo and the surrounds. Yay, Dubbo. Yeah. Mm. Um, and even though it's called a drug supply prohibition order, it's not an order at all. Um, not... If you take an order to mean a command or something like that, it's not really that at all. What it is is it's a permission. It's a warrant that designates a person as someone who a police officer is in certain circumstances pre-authorised to invade the rights of. So, what what is the person that can against whom they can get a pre-authorisation like this? It's someone who's convicted of a serious drug offence um, in the last 10 years. So what's a serious drug offence? It's what you might think it is. Um, it's possessing a tablet press. It's having a commercial quantity of drugs, it's supplying rather a commercial quantity of drugs, um, various other things uh, like that. Having your drug premises, but on only if you've been convicted twice of that for some reason. Um, and so on. And some offences that I think many people would not consider to be serious drug offences. So, for example, supply where it's more than a trafficable amount, Mm. but, for example, we're talking about just over three grams of amphetamine or cocaine or heroin, you know, just over 15 grams of codeine, you know, a minuscule amount of a drug like fentanyl. Assuming that it's possessed for the purpose of supply. Yeah. yeah, and that's and then yeah, or actual yeah. supply. Yeah, yeah, which true. could be not for a ward. Mm, yeah, true. You yeah. know, it could be just at a party, mm. at a wedding, at a yeah. So that that's, social event. That's two of the problems with it. The the one is the most important one in my view is the one that comes from what is called deemed supply, mm. which is if you possess more than a certain amount, then you are assumed effectively unless you can prove otherwise to be a supplier mm. of those drugs. What's the amount? Well, so the amounts are a lot lower than you might think reasonable, is the short answer. Yeah. Um, they recommend... Uh, and some of them, like three pills might get you in certain circumstances across these limits. Um, and, I mean, you can easily be a supplier. If you've got 20 pills in your pocket, that is the pills that you and three of your mates are going to take that night you may well fall into this category depending on the type of drug. And so what I think will happen is there will be more people 
who might be inclined to plead not guilty to these offences and throw their hand at it. Um, because what this will have on you is this consequence that the police... And I'll come to them in detail, but effectively the police will be able to trans- trample on your rights for a long time. Um, the other issue is the numbers, and this is an issue that the numbers, the quantities rather, of the drugs are just so low in so many of the categories that you've got people who will be captured in this that otherwise that really shouldn't mm. be. Yeah. Um, so put together, you've got people who might have reasonably small quantities of drugs who might just be holding drugs for their friends or just happen to have a lot of drugs because they're into a lot of drugs themselves who might find themselves subject to this regime. The other part of the regime in terms of who it captures that really stood out to me is that the timing is one where if you have been convicted of one of these offences within a 10-year period before the police seek to get a prohibition order against you, then, you know, that's sufficient. And although it doesn't expressly apply to children in terms of an order being able to be made against a child, the regime as it currently stands in this bill seems to operate or seems to um, have a provision that means that it will operate in respect of offences committed by children. So you only have to be 18 at the time of the order being made against you, but that is in respect of the last decade of any offending that you've committed. Yeah, the upshot of which is that every child who commits an offence of this type is potentially going to be the subject of such an order because you can only commit crimes from when you're 10. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so what's the threshold for the making of the order? Like, who has to be satisfied of what? For it? So, there's a whole... When I say there's a whole rigmarole, there's a, there's a very odd way that this happens. It is a magistrate acting not ex officio, but rather in personam, so by of themselves, um, who receives an application by the police commissioner or a police officer who's authorised by, I think, someone over the rank of superintendent. Um, The respondent to that application, or the subject of that application, rather, has no right to be heard. Huh. Has expressed in the legislation no right to be told about the application. Um, The application need not be heard in a courtroom. Uh, The subject has no right to see the evidence... Subject has no right to see any justification for it, has no right to see the reasons of the magistrate if they are ruled against, that is to say, if the order is made. There's no right to the reasons. Although, the, on the face of it, the commissioner seems to retain a right for reasons if it's not made. Um, the only issue is are they 10 years? So, have they got a conviction? Have they got a conviction within the 10 year period? Are they at least 18 years at the time of the application? Right. And? And is it likely to engage... uh, Is that person likely, quote, likely to engage in the manufacture or supply of a prohibited drug? And you wouldn't have to prove that non-kind of evidence in the normal way, would you? Well... It would just be intelligence and different things. The whole teaching seems to start here, right, including intelligence... So there's sort of two steps, though, right, or two states of mind that are important. The, the police officer who's making the application has to reasonably believe that the person is likely to engage in the manufacture or supply of a prohibited drug, 
of any quantity. It doesn't have to involve commercial or, or trafficable or anything like that. And then the magistrate has to be satisfied that the person's likely to engage in the manufacture or supply of a prohibited drug. Again, any quantity. Mm. So why do you think they've vested the power on a magistrate to make this order, whereas under the firearms prohibition scheme, which this is modelled on, it's the commissioner who makes it? Mm. Why do you think that it's bestowed on a magistrate? I sort of wondered whether it might go back to the history of the firearm prohibition order... Uh, regime which started in the 70s and started as quite a narrow regime that was um, one that operated effectively to prohibit a a prohibited person from possessing or using a firearm and then in 2013 under the O'Farrell government in New South Wales it was changed and broadened to to, to include search powers to set, stuff, was it? Well, to create all these criminal offences yeah. and to create the search powers. Yeah. And so there was already this long-standing mm. regime where I think the Commissioner of Police often has responsibilities in relation to firearms in terms mm. of the way that that... They do under the firearms. So does that... You know, how how the sale of firearms mm. and people who can get special permissions and things like that. So are you saying this is modelled on the Firearms Act? Yeah. And so, did the commissioner? Oh, okay. Roughly, did the commissioner have discretion inspired, to, to inspired lock, by? It, inspired by. It. Did the commissioner have discretion to um, imprison people? Sands a magistrate under the Firearms Act? No, no. It's no. not. It's not that. So they, these are not about imprisoning people. These orders, in effect, give police in certain circumstances. Uh, here. I'll come to what they are in a minute. But basically, they allow them to break into your house whenever they want. Right, okay. They allow them to search your cars. They allow them to detain and search you mm. uh, randomly, in effect, on the street, subject to one um, but requirement. Can, when you, can you do all the uh, the submissions to the magistrate in retrospect and just make a judgment call on the street if you're a street cop? Well, so what happened? No, no. So no, the you, search powers... Yeah and that Manny's going to go into detail about, only arise if a magistrate has made a supply prohibition order against a person. Okay. And that person has been personally served with the order. Mm. So by the time the Mm. order is made, the person um, has knowledge of it. Okay. And that gives... The police right to okay. That's it's basically right. a license to search people to and do other this things. Person. Okay. Where yeah. normally you would need to have a reasonable suspicion or some other state. Sure, of yeah, yeah, so yeah. That, yeah. Or, or a warrant. Yeah, or a warrant. Yeah. And and the test is so assuming the quote unquote order is in existence, the police officer needs to be satisfied that it is reasonably required, say, to search them or stop them or whatever. It is reasonably required to decide whether the person is involved in the commission of an offence involving a prohibited drug. Now, that's going to be the subject of a lot of litigation. I mean, on one view, you could only come to the view that it's reasonably required to search somebody if you had at least a suspicion that they were in the course of committing an offence involving a prohibited drug. You know, I think a similar point has been run under the FPO legislation to that and not succeeded. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think the way that's been interpreted is you stop and search that person to ascertain 
if they are involved in the commission of an offence under the Firearms Act. And the reasonably necessary bit is in there to accommodate, I think, circumstances where they might consent so you don't have to use the powers, for example. Yeah, so the language in the yeah. firearms prohibition regime Slightly is different, that it? it's for the purpose of determining whether a subject person yeah. has committed a firearms prohibition order offence as reasonably required. Mm. So it's pretty similar to that. Pretty similar. <clears throat> um, I just it's, think that yeah. the language whether a person is involved in the commission of an offence involving a prohibited drug, it's just so broad. I think it's a really low But you've got to remember the starting point, right? Because the starting point is that a magistrate has formed the view at some Mm. point in time that they're likely to be involved in the commission of that offence. So I think you would read that power in that context. So I don't think there would need to be a suspicion on behalf of the police. No, no, I agree. It's designed to be lower, yeah. I agree, but I just think that's really troubling, that it's such a low test mm. where the threshold requirement for having an order made against you is also so it's low. also pretty low yeah mm. it's interesting is involved rather than has been yeah i know or will be as in there has there's some temporality to it yeah mm. it's difficult to think of a factual scenario i suppose where it wouldn't be temporal like the reason you're searching somebody is to find some evidence mm. of oh but maybe it could be what they've done it's interesting to think about the intent of the scheme in this context because three of the target areas um, are uh, in regional New South Wales. And my understanding of the sort of policy intent is that it's to deal with sort of two situations that are particular, are particularly peculiar to regional areas. One is you can't use undercover operatives as effectively. That's mm supposed to be part of the rationale. Because people recognise Yeah, because people know who's who sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is this sort of phenomena, which I sort of understand from Dubbo, where everyone supposedly knows who's dealing drugs. Everyone knows what houses in Apollo Estate, for example, in Dubbo, mm. you know, have drug dealers in them. But the police don't have the resources to uh, to gather the information, to get the warrant, etc., etc. So this, I think, is in part supposedly a response to that. To that perceived problem, I, I, the interesting thing about using magistrates is that these orders, I think, will ultimately be there'll be a high court challenge against them for sure, along the sort of Tatani line of or the the cable sort of line because you what you're doing is you're involving a magistrate in really forming the suspicion that somebody might commit an offence is something that's pretty hectic to get a magistrate involved in. And what's so interesting is that there is an ability to seek the revocation of an order in front of the magistrate. If Except not for the first six months, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, mm-hmm. which is just so weird. And that the, the, the order might be revoked by the magistrate, including on the basis that <coughs> the subject of the order is not likely to engage in the manufacture or supply of a prohibited drug. That's the very test the magistrate applies to make the order. But what the legislation then contemplates is a six-month period where the magistrate, without assistance from the person who's the subject of the order, has made an order that is wrong. And it sits wrong, mandated by Parliament for six months. And that seems to me to bring the judicial system into disrepute, Mm. to have that in that way. Mm. You could presumably judicially review that, couldn't you? 
Well, the problem is like common law property group. Well, you can't have access to any of the evidence. But if you become aware that it's been made against you, though you might not become aware, right? Are you, no, are you, you, no, you, you will be? become you aware. Be. Okay, you're because it only operates if you're personally served. So why couldn't you seek to judicially review that decision? You don't even get the reasons. Six months? You don't get the reasons. Mm. There's no evidence record. It's almost impossible. Couldn't you subpoena it in your Supreme Court proceedings? Mm. I think you would. I, I, I think you would face the argument that the Act prohibits that the scheme is that. meant to frustrate that. Yeah. 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 I don't think it's as Except direct. as otherwise provided for in this Act, a person, including the subject of the order, is not entitled to know mm. the reasons for the decision to make the order and is not to be given access to or provided with a document or a copy of a document that formed part of the application. It's, mm. yeah. it's specifically designed to cut the person out and not give them any procedural fairness. And Which to me seemed... Th- I mean, one of the comments in the second reading speech about that was that that was because the police don't want to inform subject persons about intelligence that mm. they have collected or perhaps, you know, operational type mm. matters. But that is accommodated in other ways, in other contexts. Yeah. And I, I don't see why you can't have any right <clears throat> to be heard at all or even knowledge that the proceedings are being brought against you. Yeah, what's it the just seems so extreme a measure. Yeah, why, why 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 would you put that in the order? Well, because the police can get away with it. That's why that's why it's been done. It's been way. drafted by the police. Drafted, yeah. yeah. The police bill. pushed the pushed the proposal upon the government at the last election and they've no doubt been pushing behind it. It's appalling. There are plenty of there are plenty of schemes in which evidence is given to the court by way of... Uh, confidential affidavit confidential or something. Yeah, something like that. Um, I mean, that, if you look at the terrorism high-risk offenders legislation, yeah. that's similar in the sense that the court has to be satisfied that a person is a certain level of risk of doing something. Yeah. And that doesn't run solely on intelligence. Yeah. And the powers vested in Supreme Court judges who seem to manage to kind of work their way through it. I was thinking about the high-risk so offenders regime. it's regimes. limited to... Or it's kind of been structured in this way, I think, to facilitate a high volume of orders. I think that's right. Mm. And one one of the other things that struck me when I... And this is why, in part, I push back against the proposition that this is just the firearms protection order stuff is because this just rung in my head as the high-risk offender stuff. Just having... Mm. It's just not a hint of that. This assessment mm. of likelihood of committing an offence. And it doesn't really... I mean, what does it mean that they, they're likely to engage? How likely? How likely is not defined by the act at all, mm. um, does it mean more likely than not? Does it mean they're almost certainly going to do it? It's a lower test than in the terrorism high-risk offenders one because in that act or those two acts, they talk about... I don't think they talk about a high degree of satisfaction, but they have sort of similar language, don't they? You've got to be sort of persuaded <coughs> to a particularly high standard. Unacceptable risk. Yeah. And a high standard. It's a high, high standard. The, the interesting thing is there is that this is, not cha- this is not couched in terms of risk. No. It's couched in terms of likelihood. Yeah. So a low risk of a terrorist act, sorry, a low likelihood of a terrorist act can be a high risk because... There's a one in a million chance you're going to blow up the Harbour Bridge. That's mm. pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Here it's just well, like, what does likely mean? I mm. think it just means you might do it. And it's also a likelihood, not in respect of 
serious offences or drug dealing necessarily. It's just in respect of likely manufacture or supply. Supply. Mm. And how does it relate to, I mean, I think maybe we weren't recording this part of the conversation, but, you know, the bill that was read, was it, a, was it done before the election? Was it done as an election commitment? Because wasn't, wasn't Cable uh, an election commitment gone wrong? You know, I think it was, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. That's, that's why he brought it. That's not why I brought it up, but that's, oh, okay. that's fascinating. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keeping someone in jail. Was, well, yeah, they, yeah. they went on a platform yeah. of um, law and order. And it's so fascinating to see where we've come. So Cable was a case where they wanted to make these orders... (laughs) Sorry, he's having eating issues. They wanted to make an order against one bloke. Well, they tried to make an order, a regime, that allowed them to jail people after their jail terms had finished. And Parliament said no. So they made it against one bloke, Mr Cable. Mm. And that was deemed for various reasons unconstitutional by the High Court. Yeah. We're now at the point where people who commit serious violent offences are regularly jailed, where people who may commit terrorist offences are jailed, where people who commit serious violent, serious sexual offences after their time is finished are kept in jail repeatedly, sometimes for seven years where people who've committed firearms offences can have their house broken into effectively and entered by police officers at any time. Yeah, so do you think that's what this regime allows, Manny? Because it says it gives the power to a police officer to enter premises... um, Enter houses, cars, any premises... Where the person resides, where the police officer reasonably suspects it's owned by the person under their direct control or management... Um, also in relation to vehicles. And it also allows those searches to occur in the absence of the person. Mm. But just applying ordinary kind of trespass to property principles, surely that doesn't allow for the police to forcibly enter into a home or damage property to enter into a home or a car. I think it would give them re- a right to use reasonable force. Do you think it would? To enter, yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah. In fact, there might... I wonder if you would Actually, read no, it in Actually, no, that's right, because you do read it in conjunction with LEPRA. LEPRA powers, yeah, yeah, 230 or whatever it is. The Law Enforcement Powers and Responsibilities Act yeah. applies to a search carried out under mm. this Act, yeah. yeah. So okay, what so amendments then- would you make to this, Manny, in terms of... It's probably going to be passed, right? It was an election commitment... Presumably, there'll be people in the upper house that'll be sympathetic to it. I mean, um, yeah. like, what a me- like, how can they make this more palatable? Do you think? I think from a human rights perspective. I think what it should be is a litigated. If it must be made, it should be litigated. It should be litigated with both sides having all of the information in the ordinary way. If there needs to be some secret squirrel stuff, that should be hived off. But it should be done just like the high risk offenders are, ideally in the Supreme Court and with a detailed um, hearing. There's no, you're talking about giving the police the right to breach fundamental rights. Um, it shouldn't just be done in a closed room in the back of a magistrate's court. So that's what I think should change. And I think the only reason it is not that way mm. is because of resourcing issues mm. and a desire not... 
I'm sure the Supreme Court doesn't want to touch anything like this in light of what they're suffering with HROs at the moment, how busy their lists are. Um, but if the government wants to do these things, it should cough up and pay for it. It's interesting having a trial of this sort of power, isn't it, or these sort of powers in three areas or four areas. Like, it's an interesting yeah. approach to a new investigative powers regime, isn't it, to trial it in certain areas. What's the rationale for that, do you think? Mm. I think it's it's. I think there was a lot of resistance somewhere. It's a way of sneaking it in, isn't and it? It's a way of sneaking it in. And three of those areas, I think, contain marginal seats, don't they? Dubbo's marginal. Um, is Clarence Coffs marginal? I'm pretty sure it is. What, where were they? Yeah, yeah, Clarence Coffs is marginal. Yeah, Clarence now. Coffs. And what was it? Bankstown. Was Bankstown. Yeah, Bankstown. And what was Hunter the fourth? Valley. Hunter. Yeah, Hunter. Valley's I wouldn't have thought Bankstown would be marginal. Yeah, Bankstown probably isn't, isn't it? It's no. In, but I yeah, the other three are a lot of the police would do a lot of work there. Mm, okay, yeah. Mm, yeah, they would. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think when the firearm prohibition orders were introduced in terms of their broadened search powers, a huge proportion of the orders were made against people in southwestern Sydney. Mm, mm. Can I just recommend to people who are interested in looking at this a bit more an article written by Megan McKay? Elhone, I hope I'm pronouncing Megan's name correctly, um, quote, now their extraordinary powers, uh, firearms prohibition orders and warrantless search powers in New South Wales. It's uh, in current issues in criminal justice in 2017. We'll put a link to it on Twitter and Facebook. But she looks at the ombudsman's analysis of what happened during the first two years of operation of the firearm prohibitions orders with the search powers and some pretty extraordinary findings and she then sort of analyses whether there can really be justified in terms of what their purpose was. So of the um, searches that were conducted under the regime, only 2% resulted in any fines of any firearms or firearm-related um, ammunition or, or firearm parts. So is that a measure of success or failure? Because I'm sure the police would say, oh, well, it's working, it's deterrent. These people aren't possessing firearms. Yeah, yeah look, I think some more research needs to go into the deterrent effect of these types of regimes because that's certainly one of the justifications that the government has put up on this drug um, supply prohibition order. But the other thing, the other kind of, I think, quite telling um, facts were the police searched 233 people who were not subject to a firearms prohibition order using their firearms prohibition Mm. order search powers. So using them incorrectly. Using them incorrectly. And then the other really troubling part of it is that police quite regularly searched people because they wrongly believed that they had a search power just so long as someone was subject to a firearms prohibition order. That's really And without having to apply the additional purposive test that they're they're doing it for the purpose of um, checking whether someone has committed an offence. Exactly. Mm. And I... I just suspect that the same type of scenario will readily arise under this regime because I think police commonly don't understand well the scope of their powers and when they're looking up their 
mobile police devices and they see someone subject of a mm. um, drug supply prohibition mm. order, I think that that's going to be a signal to them. Bam, I'm searching this person. Um, there's also there's also the intentional misuse. So there's a case of the Queen against Shapely, S-H-A-I-T-L-Y, 2019, New South Wales District Court 762, where all of the evidence was thrown out by a very brave judge um, because the police pretended that they were looking for guns under a firearms protection mm. order, but weren't. They were just using it to do a, another search because they suspected <clears throat> there were some drugs in there but wouldn't have been able to get a warrant. Mm. And one suspects the same sort of misuse is going to happen with these. Um, There's an interesting line of case law about FPOs where police serve them and then immediately search. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I won a case in Sorry, the local court. Sorry, what's FPO? Firearms prohibition. Sorry, order. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so I, I had this um, interesting case up on the Central Coast where they served an FPO on a guy who was standing outside his car. He didn't move or say anything, and they immediately searched him in the car. And that was held to be unlawful on the basis that you couldn't form the view that it was reasonably necessary to see if he had breached the FPO, if he hadn't engaged in any actus reus <laughs> in between service and search. Yeah, yeah. And that's great. Well, I that, can't rule that out from you right now either. <laughs> that was argued in front of Magistrate Maiden, um, and he, yeah, he th- no, he didn't throw it out. He found that it was unlawful, mm. admitted it under 138, but then found it's not guilty on the basis of another sort of issue that was um, um, applicable. But then there was another line of case law where Magistrate Clisdell was of the view that you couldn't search someone upon service of, of an FPO um, inside 28 days because in the FPO legislation there's a provision for review within 28 days. Mm. Um so all these sort of different arguments will be thrown up about this stuff. Mm. And I'm sure these will be a lot more common because I would have thought that there'd be many more supply offences in the community than firearms offences. So small. Yeah. And it's not people much... people will meet the threshold. It's not much of a protection having a magistrate sort of exercise the power in chambers. No that, way. that will be administratively, I would have thought, no more difficult than having the commissioner do it. No, and, and, and vulnerable people will be affected. But... Anyway, ultimately, this will go in front of the Parliament, um, will progress through, no doubt be passed. Um, no doubt people listening to us in Parliament will hmm. speak to, against yeah. it, one if, hopes. If you uh, haven't bothered to read hopes. the bill, just listen to this episode. That's right. So, Steve, have you written to the Attorney-General with your views about this? I have written to the Attorney-General, right. and I have suggested that if they are going to trial this scheme, that they should make it a genuine trial of a new approach where the focus in respect of illicit drugs is on uh, controlling and intercepting supply rather than um, on possession and street offences. Mm-hmm. So I proposed a trial um, in these four districts where they trial a decriminalisation of so-called street drug offences um, and also in those areas introduce or ensure that uh, service provision in respect of drug treatment um, is up to the standard so that it's a true trial of a new approach but I haven't heard back yet. I'll eat my wig. Mm. I think it's extremely unlikely, but I just wanted to get that idea out there. It worked in the wire. We're going to have a a trial of some new approach. Let's actually try a new approach rather Mm. than the same old tired approaches. I love Mm. it. And also let's not just use the language of deterrence without a proper evidence base for it. Mm. I mean, this bill is not supported by evidence that this kind of mode of operating and policing is going to have a deterrent effect on people who... That's why it's a trial. 
I think the dealers are pretty. You know, I think the dealers are often pretty smart, right? Yeah. And once they're subject to this sort of order, they'll ensure that their drugs are stored in you know a different place or stop functioning in the target area for the period of the trial. I mean, they'll do all sorts of things. It's not going to meaningfully yeah. intercept drug supply. You have the bloke standing next to him carrying the drugs. It's just going to rope, yeah. rope more people into drug supply. Back after that short interval. Um, moving on to our next topic, Felicity Graham. I would introduce the topic, only I've forgotten it. Please fill this memory blank with your knowledge. Jim, there's another bill. This is actually a draft government bill. Oh, yes. What does um, that mean? Like an exposure draft? Hang on. Mm. Oh, okay. A public consultation draft. So it's the unusual. New South Wales government is yeah, these days. seeking feedback oh, okay. from the community on a draft consultation bill called the Crimes Legislation in Brackets Offences Against Pregnant Women, close brackets, bill of 2020. Okay. And basically it's a proposal to deal with the situation where a crime is committed... Against a pregnant woman, one of the consequences of which is the death or destruction of the fetus, Mm -hmm. whether or not any other harm, physical harm or death is caused to um, the woman. The woman, irrespective of that, right. Mm -hmm. Yep. So in Australia, different jurisdictions deal with this situation in different ways. In New South Wales, the current law is that if a crime is committed where an unborn fetus is harmed to the point of being destroyed or dying, then that is recognised as being a form of grievous bodily harm to the mother. Right. And so... Offences can be um, charged in that way. Mm. And it sometimes comes up, for example, in a situation where there's a car accident or yeah. I think actually, an assault. I heard there was a case in our crime. I can't, obviously can't remember the outcome of it, but, yeah, we had to come across a similar case. There was an accident, car accident, when I was doing crim law, yeah. Does that mean if I were to hit a pregnant person in the stomach with the intention of destroying the fetus and the pregnant person died as a result, I'd be guilty of a murder. I probably would be, wouldn't I? Because that's GBH. It's intention towards GBH. Mm. Mm. I thought I'd that. Anyway, sorry. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's... I think that'd be right. Yeah. yeah, so in some jurisdictions in Australia, there is a broader recognition of a separate type of crime to recognise, like, fetal homicide, right. essentially. Um, so, for example, in the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, um, and in Queensland, 
and I think also WA and the NT, there are some offences that involve the killing of an unborn child when a woman is about to be delivered of a child um, or in, in the ACT it's called child destruction. Those offences generally apply when birth is imminent or actually delivery is already beginning. Mm-hmm. So is that like a modern version of infanticide? Yeah, I don't know. Like something that's not murder, but mm. a sort of tailored offence for that mm. kind of situation. Doesn't that subsist in New South Wales, some sort of infanticide? Not sure. Yeah. Mm. So then, but in New South Wales, there's been some debate about to what degree <clears throat> or how the law should recognise the harm that is involved in the death or destruction of a fetus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this new bill that the government is seeking consultation on is proposed to amend a number of different acts. One is proposed to amend the Crimes Act so that there's going to be a new regime in relation to how penalties work. Um, and I'll go through that in a minute. And then there's also proposed to be amendments to the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act in relation to how victim impact statements work. So at the moment, generally, if a death occurs, the immediate family members of that person are entitled to give a victim impact statement about the impact of the crime mm-hmm. on them. Yep. Um, but if, um, under the current law, the grievous bodily harm of a pregnant woman occurs, um, that wouldn't ordinarily give rise to... For example, the expecting father to be able to give a victim impact statement or other members of the family that have been affected by that crime. But these proposed amendments would change that. Sure. And then there's another proposal to provide that an indictment, which means the charge sheet, um, is not defective if it names in the indictment the name of the fetus of a pregnant woman where that fetus um, has been killed or destroyed as a result of a crime. And then there's another provision which basically provides that under the motor accidents regime that funeral expenses for um, the fetus can be provided for under that regime. So that indictment thing is really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, these sort of proposals are obviously controversial in terms of a woman's right to choose because they're starting to kind of walk to some degree down the path of recognising uh, the unborn child, right? So to have this kind of unusual provision where you can name the unborn child, that seems almost like... Um, like something that would have been on the wish list of the right to life sort of coalition, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, yeah, it's it's weird. The, the 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 drafting of that section in the bill is just just it's lazy drafting, frankly. So instead of saying, "Look, you should you have to plead, or you can plead the name of the fetus that's been destroyed." They've instead said it is not a defect to plead it. Mm. So the Crown would still be doing something wrong 
it would just wouldn't you couldn't take issue with it mm. in the course of the proceedings, which just seems really lazy drafting and, and kind of a to, to expect crowns then to break the rules because it's not the issue can't be taken is to set crowns up to be in an awful position. Yeah, I think it's quite drafting. deliberate though because it's sort of dealing with this situation where it's saying we're not going to give the fetus legal personhood to be to allow them to be properly named as a victim in the indictment because that's too far. We're not going to take that step and create an offence or create a, a circumstance of aggravation that involves recognising personhood of the fetus. But we're just going to say that the indictment is not bad, insufficient, void, erroneous or defective if you name the fetus of the pregnant woman in an indictment relating to the destruction of a fetus of a pregnant woman. So is that for the purpose of pleading the circumstance of aggravation in the indictment, is it? Well, it could be. So Mm. this this is the kind of principle part of the Amendment to the Crimes Act that's proposed, which is to say that it will be a circumstance of aggravation or make the offence more serious if the relevant offence is committed against a pregnant woman and the act or omission that constitutes the relevant offence causes the destruction of the fetus of the woman, then um, it says to remove any doubt, the destruction of the fetus is a circumstance of aggravation whether or not the pregnant woman survives or dies as a result of the act or omission that constitutes relevant offence and it's not necessary for the prosecution to prove that the defendant knew or ought reasonably to have known that the woman was pregnant and I interpolate also that the woman doesn't even need to know that she was pregnant at the time. Um, And then what is the consequence of that is that it elevates the maximum penalty that would be available for the offence by three years. So if, for example, you commit um, an act of dangerous driving causing grievous bodily harm by way of the death of the fetus, that offence will be elevated in terms of its maximum penalty by three years. But just going back to Manny's point at the start of the discussion, he said, you know, if an offence was committed where someone was punched in the stomach and it caused the destruction of a fetus, but there was no knowledge that there was a fetus in existence, and that still hits the the maximum penalty. But how is there intention to kill if you don't even know the person exists? It doesn't have to be murder. So it's like... There's this principle that you take the victim as you find right. them. Right. So, for example, if I punch you, right. if, oh, I, yeah. if I hurt you, or, you know, so if I hurt yeah. you, mm. and then you go to hospital and you have some blood disease and you die from it, yeah, yeah, I can still go down for killing you. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. It's the same, it's the same idea. So, I, principally, I think that that works. The two problems I have with this, with this provision is, one, um, the use of the word woman rather than person because it kind of cuts out trans people. Mm. Um, and the second problem I have with it is that on the face of it, you can get life plus three years. Mm. Because if you murder someone and they have a kid, then the maximum penalty is life plus three years, which is a novelty in this jurisdiction. How would a bill like this, assuming it passes, sit alongside the recent decriminalisation of abortion in New South Wales? I mean, there's no direct conflict okay. um, in the sense that it doesn't impact in a direct way. I mean, like on for example, to abortion. Like, but I think it's a, 
it's I think it's an attempt to to give personhood to the unborn child, yeah. Which I think some people would uh, would be critical of because they would see it as, you know, the beginning of a series of policy choices that might ultimately lead back to you know, to banning abortion, right? Yeah, I'm quite sure that this bill would have its origin in some demand from Fred Nile or sort of other right to lifers, right? Yeah, and that's generally where this comes from, isn't it? There's been a there's been a bill on the books effectively trying to criminalise the conduct of killing a fetus mm. in, in this way. There's been a form of that for at least 10 or 20 I think Fred years. Nile's been pushing a particular version that might have just yeah. got voted down, I think, actually. Yes, you're right. Fred Nile of the Christian Democratic Party has, since 2013, introduced on a number of occasions to the New South Wales Parliament a bill, the Crimes Amendment Zoe's Law Bill, which proposes to establish a separate offence for conduct causing serious harm to or the destruction of an unborn child and setting a maximum penalty of 10 years' imprisonment. But it doesn't apply to anything done during a medical procedure or anything done by or with the consent of the mother. As part of the reform, it's proposed to amend the definition of grievous bodily harm so that it no longer includes the destruction of the fetus of a pregnant woman because that will be covered by a separate offence. And then the bill also proposes to specifically extend the offence of dangerous driving causing death or grievous bodily harm to dangerous driving causing the destruction of or serious harm to an unborn child. So, in effect, Fred Nile's bill would give legal personhood to a fetus at any stage of a pregnancy. The Women's Legal Service has been critical of Fred Nile's approach and uh, concerned that it... um, is a clear attempt to undermine women's rights by changing the legal status of a fetus. So that issue is definitely one that um, women's advocates are concerned about. I remember this being an issue when I was at the AGs doing law reform 12, 13 years ago. It's been around for forever. Um, yeah. It seems an oddly... It seems so odd because of what you say, Stephen, which is concerning... But on the other hand, from a government that recently decriminalised abortion, it's not necessarily an unsensible approach. I mean, if, no, this I is, agree. if this isn't the thin end of the mm. wedge, then actually this, with a little bit of <clears throat> tweaking and whatever, like it needs to be fixed up operatively a little bit. But mm. on, the, on the whole, mm. it seems a considered policy position. The danger is that it's the thin end of the wedge. You've got to take it on its don't... merits though, don't you? I mean, you can't necessarily see it as just a thin edge of the wedge. I mean, if it makes sense, and I think most people would see that there is an additional wrong when those sorts of harms are are inflicted on people. Yeah, I'm just not sure that within the current kind of maximum penalties and sentencing principles that we have that this type of harm, which I think is a very specific and kind of worthy of acknowledgement Mm. form of harm, um, that the current regimes can't actually take it into account. I, I think there's scope for it. I mean, um, I think judges would treat this kind of uh, consequence of a wrong to be very aggravating on sentence. Mm. I don't think they need this particular bill to well, take that approach. It's, it has mm. to be. It's yeah. sort of interesting, though. So I, was, I read um, Judge Buscombe's sentencing decision um, of this man, Mr Moananu, who was sentenced... Um, just on the 5th of November this year in the district court, and he was sentenced What's having... What's the citation? It's 
Uh, <laughs> square brackets, 2020 NSWDC 672. New South Wales District Court. Correct. Yeah. Um, so Mr Monanu was sentenced having pleaded guilty to um, two offences of manslaughter, one offence of driving a vehicle when it involved an impact occasioning grievous bodily harm in circumstances of aggravation being <clears throat> under the influence of alcohol plus some other offences relating to his um, driving, including driving whilst he had cannabis or form of cannabis present in his blood. One of the people that he unlawfully killed, who was a passenger in a car that he um, he crashed into, was pregnant with twins and was due to give birth the following week. Uh-huh. And so her husband was also in the car. He was the one who um, got serious injuries and then his sister was the driver. So this whole family has just been completely torn apart by these set of offences. He was driving... Um, as Judge Buskin described, in a way that um, was disgracefully irresponsible and amounted to extremely serious conduct. And His Honour referred to, um, obviously, the fact of the twins um, dying as a consequence of the injuries that the mother suffered and referred also to a number of the family members who, um, his honour said, bravely read victim impact statements to the court. And his honour referred to them not only by relationship to um, those who died but also by relationship to the unborn twins and his honour said it's impossible to fully comprehend the devastating impact these offences have had on those persons and their immediate family members. The emotional pain and loss they have suffered is severe and continuing. Their lives have been changed forever. No sentence I can impose in this case can alleviate the pain they have suffered and will continue to suffer as a consequence of the offender's appalling actions that day. But one, I thought, slightly curious part of the judgment refers to the Crown submissions and that the Crown submitted that the deaths of the unborn twins were not relied upon in the sentencing for the manslaughter offence concerning the mother. And then that's at paragraph 57 for our really committed listeners. And then again that the Crown in its submissions did not contend that the objective gravity of the offences was aggravated because of the consequences of the death of the mother paragraph 103 but that strikes me as because normally consequences of conduct as long as they're within the range of what can sort of reasonably be expected normally they are relevant aren't they to objective gravity I would have thought it's highly relevant to objective gravity Mm. and I mean, look, he... So do you think when you recognise the horrible impact of, you know, the killing of unborn children in this way, that you do start to undermine the rationale for on-demand abortion? I think the difference is there that 
you could make the argument that it is the effect on the primary victim, if we can put it that way, rather than the fetus. And in circumstances where the effect on the fetus is pleaded, one would expect the primary victim wanted to cheat that child or you know, thought, thought of it as a child and thought a child was going to be born. And so that's the effect, rather than the circumstance where somebody doesn't want to cheat the child and so what we're permitted to exercise mm. their choice. Should you can the, see attention though, can't you? Should the... Mm. Should the offending be aggravated in circumstances where the offender doesn't know or, or have any basis to know that a woman is pregnant, she doesn't know she's pregnant, and the fetus is perhaps only a few weeks old? Like, is that... Because this would be engaged in that Absolutely. situation, assuming you could mm. prove it. Um, well, less is the answer to that, isn't it? Mm. It but I suppose there might be additional trauma rest. in that situation to the woman. That's right. Mm. Like she discovers as part of her medical treatment that she was pregnant and she's lost the child. She's been mm. trying to have a baby for 10 years. Exactly. I mean, it would inflict additional trauma. So if you see this law, if you see the rationale for this law as the vindication, you know, the mother's kind of right to bodily integrity and so forth, mm. then it would be kind of sensibly enlivened there, wouldn't it? Mm. I mean, I think that if you're someone who's been trying to get pregnant for a long time, you fall pregnant, you lose a fetus in these circumstances, that that just obviously is a really high level of harm. Mm, I agree. And But I'm not sure exactly how we frame appropriate acknowledgement of it because there's quite a few different things going on, right? There's... There's the sort of emotional, psychological harm on the would-be mother and perhaps would-be father, plus other relatives that might be sort of in a in the way that we structure our community, involved and invested in the the continuation of a family or or whatever. There's obviously physical harm to the mother in some way to bring about that. Um, yeah, but this is the problem. It's with a deeply new, yeah. troubling kind of situation to be in. But I, I think this is the problem with enumerating, aggravating, and mitigating factors uh. in legislation. Like everybody self-evidently knows that the death of two of a woman who's about to bear, bear two twins is worse, is horrible and worse, mm. and they need to be punished by it. Mm. And instinctively, a judge might well understand that a particular woman was or a particular mother was concerned about their fetus in a way that this causes harm to her. It's just something you get. You don't need to set it out. And that brings me to one of my biggest fears about this bill is that is this going to start a race? So we've already got this race that's happened in Section 21A of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act where it's like, oh, there's this new crime that's happened. We're going to add it in there as an aggravating factor. We're going to add it on sentence. Now I'm worried there's going to be this race to have aggravated penalties for different Mm. matters. So, oh, this involved a child under five. We're going to have an aggravated penalty Mm. scheme for there. And everyone's going to all of a sudden want that. Or a person in a position of authority, therefore add on five years. Yeah. Mm. That's why I 
Like if you look at, for example, the sentences that were imposed on Mr. Moanano, sorry, Moanano, he was sentenced to an aggregate term, so putting everything together, all of his conduct, a 15-year mm. term with a non-parole period of 10 years in circumstances where each of the manslaughters carries 25 years imprisonment, the offence against the um, the husband carried 11 years um, and then there were some other less serious offences. So you're not even approximating the maximum penalty for even a single offence. That's right. Because mm. it carries but, 25, doesn't it, manslaughter? Mm. Yeah, but... It seems Buscombe has, whatever the Crown might have said, acknowledged the harm involved. I mean, he's honest said the catastrophic nature of what has occurred here and the number of family members deeply impacted by what has occurred, in particular the killing of Ms Gordon, which resulted in the death of two unborn boys mm. who were a week away from being delivered, is totally devastating for all members of the Huang and Gordon families. It just seems that that part of the fact pattern has <clears throat> been taken into account and the harm done, that specific type of harm has been acknowledged. But we don't need an extra three years mm. on the maximum penalty to reflect that harm because mm. for these type of serious offences, generally where grievous bodily harm or death occurs, you know, the maximum penalties usually are in that 20, 25 life kind of range. Though not for dangerous driving causing death, I suppose. Like, dangerous driving causing death carries, what, a maximum um, of 10 years, I think. And also wreck GBH. Yeah, only carries, right. what does that carry? Seven, seven. doesn't yeah. So seven to ten, that's a real difference. Mm. Mm. Um, break and enters, maybe. Robberies. The lesser robberies. Wreck wounding. Wreck only carries seven, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but a wreck... Like, if if the death of a fetus occurs in circumstances <clears throat> where the mother doesn't die, it's at least going to be a GBH. Hey, so wreck? Reckless. Reckless. Gotcha. Yeah, but a reckless GBH is, what, seven? Mm. So if you punch someone... Seven or ten, yeah. Not sure. Yeah. And also, in order for it to be a reckless GBH you have to be cognizant of the fact of the pregnancy. Mm. Whereas in this, you could commit a common assault. Assuming that that's the harm reliable. Assuming that's the harm reliable, yeah. So if it's not that, if you... you oh, you're saying it could be a common assault because yeah. the knowledge element's yeah. not there, but yeah. actually the fetus is... Say, it's the woman's not obviously pregnant. Yeah. yeah. And that takes it to five years rather than two as a maximum. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. You're drunk at a pub and you mm. punch someone in the face. And it causes her to miscarriage. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Hearing those facts, I just want to say, I would like to never appear in another dangerous driving causing death case. Mm. Because they are just the pits, I think. Yeah. So sad. So sad. Just so sad. Just, yeah. yeah. Oh, the facts in this matter are just awful. Mm. I really hate those matters. And, you know, there's obviously the worst possible outcome. So there's invariably someone in the courtroom who's lost a family member, uh, but often not the gravity of conduct that accompanies a murder or something like that. So not the punishment that the family's expecting because they have suffered the worst outcome. But objectively, you know, there's a spectrum of dangerous driving. So what they expect by way of vindication is never there most of the time. And there's just no winners and it's just hideous. Having said that, the Australian reported on the 
sentencing and Mr Huang, who was really seriously injured himself and lost his wife, his twins, his sister, spoke after the sentence and said um, he didn't wish any hate or harm and held no resentment against the man who took his wife and children away. I've made peace with this incident, but the aftermath isn't something I can easily forget as this has caused a ripple effect for both families and this will forever be a part of our lives. And then he said um, he challenged Mr Moananu to prove wrong the stigma of a, quote, criminal will always be a criminal, telling him he had, quote, the power and control to turn your life around. I mean, I just think that is incredible Mm. from someone who has experienced such tragedy that he can... That reminds me of that woman, it was last year or the year before, who I think her two children were killed, and she did this incredible TV interview where she basically... She was obviously very religious, where she expressed similar sentiments, and it's just extraordinary. And so often you see people who quite rightfully are so angry and so hurt and all they want is blood... And you can totally understand it. But then every so often you you see these cases where mm. there's someone who's just on the other end of the spectrum, mm. you know. It's quite incredible. Oh, no. it's mm. so powerful. Okay, welcome back to the Wigs. That was a nice little break, a nice little tune there. I don't know who uh, is the author of that tune, but um, thank you for making that tune. I'll put the, I'll put the credits in the liner <clears throat> notes. Copyright free. No, well, yeah, I pay for the, I pay for a license. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we do everything by the book here. Hundred percent. We're so This is a law show. Uh, thanks for eating that right That's why on cue, Lawrence. No one heard that. No I can hear it. I can hear it. I've never had listener feedback about my eating. I have dreams of it. <laughs> Lawrence. Sorry, I just broke my f***ing... Oh, Jim. My swear judge. My mum listens to We'll get to, to that in fun. We'll get to that in fun things. I'm sorry, Mrs. Lawrence. Okay, let's move <laughs> on to it. please apologise to my parents too I'm, and my auntie Michelle? I'm sorry to the Graham household. Zzz. And my son Damien also. I'm sorry, Damien. My family well. doesn't listen. <laughs> 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 That's <laughs> awful. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought we had um, most of Armenia listening. Well, we did. We did with the Jeffrey Robertson episode. Mm. But before that, even. Yeah. We're a few people from Armenia. Yeah. I have a cousin. <clears throat> you have a cousin. <laughs> <laughs> one, one Armenian. Okay. Uh, hey, do we have um, System of a Down listening? Yeah, yeah. That'd be Surge, great. probably. There you go. Shout yeah, out to couple, Surge. Couple of songs. Tankian. Yeah, please. Can you supply us with some weeks related? Anyway, Mr. Lawrence. Yeah, can I do my topic, please? Please. Okay, so I'm talking about an interesting new decision of Justice Bromberg in AJL 20 and Commonwealth of Australia 2020 FCA 1305. Correct. There's your citation, Manny. Thank you. It's a really interesting decision. Um, It was handed down on the 11th of September 2020. Involved uh, um, a Syrian man who was in, in immigration detention and had been there since 2014. He saw a writ of habeas corpus, um, in other words, an order that he be brought before the court for the purpose of the court determining if he was lawfully detained. And Justice Bromberg ultimately held that he was not lawfully detained and and ordered his release. He's a man who sits within a sort of growing cohort, I think, of people in Australia who are refugees in the sense of 
having a well-established fear of persecution if returned to their home country, but who the Australian government has refused to allow to have a visa to live here, and that's generally because of them failing a character test. So generally people that have held a visa, engaged um, in criminal conduct, had the visa cancelled but are also uh, people who Australia has made a discretionary decision not to return them to their home country because of the harm they face. So we've refused them visas on, um, on the grounds of character. So the 501... Yeah, 501 is generally... we've discussed. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but they are refugees, and that's been accepted on um, an administrative level, I suppose, and we've made a discretionary decision that they are not to be returned to their home country. And is that in performance of the non-refoulement doctrine? Yeah. So Australia has a policy that we do not return people when we have international non-refoulement obligations in respect of them. So the question in this case was whether the statutory regime for detention is lawfully enlivened in circumstances where we're detaining them but we don't, uh, don't intend to return them in circumstances where um, it's possible to return them and we've made um, a decision not to. So this is a growing uh, a growing, co- growing cohort of people um, and WIGS listeners who listen to episode one will recall our discussion about section 501 of the Migration Act and so, the explosion in cancellations. But so how many people would fall into this category of being a 501 visa refusal but having otherwise been accepted administratively as being a genuine refugee? I'm not sure. I've got three three cases involving people um, in similar circumstances. I think one's a stateless person, so that puts them in a slightly different category mm. uh, because they can't be returned to a home country. Mm. Actually, I know. I have another one as yeah. well. Yeah, so I'm not sure about exact numbers, but I would say definitely hundreds, maybe thousands. And so this is just, we're going to lock you up forever. Is that where it lands? Is that where they start? That's basically where it lands. I mean, I think the government's intention would probably be to return them when circumstances change. Right. Um, But, yeah, basically it can involve something that looks a lot like indefinite detention, Mm. which, of course, has been upheld by the High Court in Alcatel, which was a stateless uh, person. Um, And the circumstances here are different because this is someone who we have chosen not to return. So we can return people to Syria, but we've made a decision that, that we aren't going to return uh, this fellow because he faces harm there, but the government still wanted him locked up. So, so but that, can I... Sorry, oh, sorry go mate. Is that how Alcatel was distinguished then? Yeah. In effect? Yeah. Because there's the possibility... It sounds kind of perverse, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'll come to yeah. uh, the, uh, the particular provisions, but basically it's different because in Alcatel, where the question was was the government removing uh, Alcatel as soon as reasonably practicable? Yeah. Um, and that's, that has to be uh, the purpose of detaining someone, uh, to be lawful under the Migration Act for the mm. purpose of removing them. Uh, the, gov- uh, the, uh, the High Court in that case, and there was um, a split decision, but they said there is an intention to remove him. It's just not possible because he's stateless. Mm. Um, and if something something changes, then um, he'll be removed. But the government's intention is to remove him, and that's why he's locked up. Mm. <clears throat> Whereas in this situation, it's different because there's not an impracticability to remove. Mm. The government is to intending to not return. Intending him. to not return. Him. Mm. Yeah. And so the non-reformant policy 
of the Australian government to not return someone to a situation of persecution mm. is not consistent with their own Migration Act. That's basically right, yeah. Um, and the provisions of the Migration Act that are at play is this... Um, and I might just talk first before I go there about some brief facts of the case. Yeah, can I just ask you this, though, mm. before? Um, so you said that Bromberg ordered his release having found that he was being unlawfully detained. So was he actually released? Uh, yeah, as far as I know. Yeah, okay. Mm. And I'm not aware of any appeal. Mm. Yeah, so in terms of his circumstances, there's not a lot in the judgment about the facts, but he, he's a citizen of Syria, so physically um, he can be sent back because unlike countries such as Iran and so forth, as I understand it, they will accept uh, peace, they will accept people um, who are citizens and being forcefully returned. Um, in around 1996, his mother immigrated to Australia. Then in around May 2005 he was granted a child class A subclass visa. So his age is not he's not in the decision, but I would infer from that that he's probably in his 20s or so. His visa was cancelled on the 2nd of October 2014 under 5012. There's nothing in the decision about what offences he committed, but um, presumably he, uh, he committed certain criminal offences. So upon his visa being cancelled... He became an unlawful non-citizen within the meaning of the Act. On the 8th of October 2014, he was detained by an officer um, of the Commonwealth under Section 189.1 of the Act and stayed in detention until the writ of habeas was granted. And it's clear in the decision the Department of Immigration and Border Protection have determined and the Minister has accepted that Australia has protection obligations in relation to the, op- to the applicant, being an obligation not to refoul the applicant to Syria... Uh, despite that acceptance, the Minister has refused to grant the applicant a protection visa um, and on or before 25 July 2019, the Minister declined to consider granting the applicant a visa under 195A of the Act. So the reason that he would have been refused a protection visa notwithstanding enlivening Australia's obligations is that character is a criteria for a protection visa and the Minister can choose to consider character first so you could be someone who's eligible um, as a refugee, but you can be refused on character or public interest um, also. So let's say you are refused on character first. Does that mean that your protection claim may never actually be determined, but then there might still be some non-reformant policy that yeah, might be right. considered? <clears throat> yeah, so the... Even though your application for protection yeah. visa isn't? Yeah, so you might not have your eligibility as a matter of statute to a protection visa decided, Mm. but there's a whole internal um, administrative process which, if it's not still called this, it certainly used to be called International Treaty Obligation Assessment Process. And you see cases in the federal court where people challenge determinations of that nature because they are in the nature of decisions uh, that are susceptible to review Mm -hmm. because they have the consequence of extending detention and so forth. So there's basically a sort of inside government process that is non-statutory. So Australia won't expel someone Mm. if the person's asserting obligations until they assess if they are owed obligations. Um, So, yeah, the case raises interesting questions about the constitutional limit on detention of non-citizens the interpretation of the provisions of the Migration Act 
uh, that allowed tension. So just turning to those provisions, um, starting point is section 189 of the Migration Act, which states in pretty simple terms, if an officer knows or reasonably suspects that a person in the migration zone, other than an excised offshore place, is an, un- uh, is an unlawful non-citizen, the officer must detain the person. So it's sort of interesting that there's a mandatory requirement mm. to detain, but then, and then a mandatory requirement to remove as soon as reasonably practicable. Mm. So there's no discretion that would allow, for example, an officer to decline to take someone into custody in circumstances where they know that inevitably. Mm they're going to be taking someone into unlawful custody because yeah. the government's never going to have an intention to remove mm. them. Yeah, I mean, this... Would you... That power has been interpreted um, as subject to, firstly, uh, the provisions in Section 198 that say you've got to remove as soon as practicable. Mm. So detention under 189 is not going to be lawful if there's no intention at that point to remove as soon as practicable. So does and that, that comes from a officer, constitutional implication And as so well. does that give the officer the discretion to refuse to detain the person, despite the command in 189 that says they must? Well, it would certainly mean that any detention would be unlawful. Yeah, I know that. Mm. But whether mm. that then gives rise to a discretion on behalf of the officer not to detain? If you don't form the intention... Mm. Well, if you know yeah. that the government is never going to have the intention to remove um, as soon as reasonably practicable because of non-reformant considerations. I mean, you might have the power to detain, but as soon as you do so, um, it might become unlawful. So mm. maybe that's sort of the same outcome, I suppose. Um, so the next section that is relevant is um, section 196 says an unlawful non-citizen detained under 189 must be kept in immigration detention until he or she is removed from Australia under 198 or 199, or an officer begins to deal with the non-citizen under subsection 198AD3, he or she is deported under 200 or granted a visa. And then section 198, which is key, imposes the obligation to remove as soon as reasonably practicable. Mm. So the essential argument advanced by AJL20 was that his detention was not lawful, because the power in section 196 is conditioned by the limitation in section 198 that the removal must occur as soon as reasonably practicable so that once that's not happening, you're unlawfully detained. So the court accepted that. This is going to cover quite a lot of people, I Heaps think. of people, yeah. Heaps of people. Especially stateless people. I don't think it is going to apply to stateless people because on our Kateb, they are detained for the purpose of removing as soon as practicable, but it's not practicable. Mm, really? But, I, yeah, I should say I that. There's a lot of people in migration law who think that al is right to be reconsidered. It was a split decision of the High Court, but it is a majority, majority decision of the High Court that says you can detain a stateless person indefinitely. So that's 2004 CLR from the Law Reports 562. Yeah. I heard somewhere, I, can't, I went to a speech that somebody who was involved in Alcatel gave about it, and they were suggesting that Justice McHugh mm. went with the majority because he thought it would lead to the imposition of a Bill of Rights in Australia. <laughs> um, Interesting. 
What a mistake, if that's true. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Mm. So the court accepted that argument. So the ratio of the decision really is that if you decide not to deport a refugee because you make a discretionary decision to comply with international law, then under the current Act, their detention is unlawful because you are not complying with the requirement to deport as soon as reasonably practicable. Um, or to remove as soon as reasonably practical because deport has a particular meaning under the Act. Mm. So that conclusion in one sense was really just an exercise in statutory interpretation, but it's reinforced and the interpretation is conditioned by a really important constitutional principle which comes out of a decision called LIM and Minister for Immigration 1992 176 CLR 1 where the High Court held that... Quote, the provisions of the Act which then authorised mandatory detention of certain aliens were valid laws if the detention which those laws required and authorised was limited to what was reasonably capable of being seen as necessary for the purpose of deportation or to enable an application for permission to enter and remain in Australia to be made and considered. So the High Court has read into the Constitution an implied limitation on the power to detain the High Court said that you can only detain in certain circumstances. One of them is obviously pursuant to a sentence of imprisonment and, mm. and another one is for the purpose of deportation or for the purpose of enabling a visa application to be made. So 196198, their interpretation has been conditioned by this limb principle uh, because constitutionally you couldn't interpret those provisions to allow a sort of indefinite detention on the basis that you choose not to deport. So it's not constitutionally consistent. Does LIM predate Kateb, al Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, then there was another case from the High Court Plaintiff S4, 2014, Administrative Immigration and Border Protection, 2014, 253 CLR219, where the High Court uh, reaffirmed, uh, because detention under the Act can only be for the purposes identified, the purposes must be pursued and carried into effect as soon as reasonably practicable. That conclusion follows from the purposive nature of detention under the Act, but it is a conclusion that is reinforced by consideration of the text and structure of the Act. Um, so, on the question um, of fact, which was obviously important in this decision, uh, Justice Bromberg had to look at the question of whether removal was being done as soon as reasonably practicable. And there'd been subpoenas and notices to produce and so forth that basically pulled out his immigration file. Um, and he was a person being detained um, in WA um, at the Yonga Hill uh, Immigration Detention Centre, I think it is. And she, uh, his uh, immigration case officer, had all of her file notes put into evidence. And basically what it showed was that There'd been a non-refoulement assessment done. Uh, it was held that Australia had international protection obligations in respect of him. And there were entries on his file, including things like, quote, not removable, 501 with non-refoulement issues, status resolution barrier, 8.7, non-refoulement obligations. So all of these notations on the file basically showed that Administratively, he'd been assessed as a refugee. That was a bar to removal. Therefore, his detention, um, in Justice Bromberg's view, was not lawful because he was not being removed as soon as reasonably practicable. Mm. 
So what does it all mean? Well, I suppose on one hand, um, it's a good decision in the sense that someone um, unlawfully detained has been has been released from custody. Uh, but what does it mean in a broader sense if we've got a situation where we can't detain proven refugees that the governments of the view are a threat to the community because of character issues? Well, I would have thought it might mean that they might start sending them back. Yeah, so mm. what I was going to ask you is if you were acting for AJL20 and advising him about bringing this habeas case... Would you advise him that one of the consequences of bringing the case could be that he could be released from detention by way of being put on a plane and sent back to Syria? That's a really difficult question to answer. Um, I think firstly on the basis that right now in the midst of the pandemic and stuff, it's probably unclear whether that, Mm -hmm. that actually is able to happen. But more fundamentally, it's a difficult question because <clears throat> the long-standing position of the Australian government is that we don't deport refugees to harm. That's a matter of international obligation. Um, though that said, there's an exception in the Refugee Convention for people who pose a threat to the security of the community. So there is a path to, to saying that as a matter of the Refugee Convention, maybe there's not a non-reformal obligation... However, uh, um, there's also non-reformal obligations that arise under the ICCPR and other instruments, and they apply in a heightened situation. So if someone's at a risk of being killed, then there's basically a non-derogable international obligation not to refoul, Mm. even if that person is a threat to security. Mm. So it's probably a bit of a sliding scale, but if talking about Syria and the dire situation there then I think this guy would enliven a non-derogable uh, obligation not to refoul. So you could probably say to him, look, if the court holds that your detention is unlawful, there might be a view in the government that you should be sent back to Syria. However, there's also going to be a view in the government that it's the long-standing policy of Australia that we don't breach our international obligations, particularly in such a profound way as to send someone back to their death. So, look, you'd have to advise of all of those things. I'm not quite sure what the client would sort of make of it all, but Mm. it's a really complicated and difficult situation and Mm. posed in no large part because of our really draconian approach to 501 and character issues. Totally. I mean, that just... It's not clear from this decision what he um, is said to have done, but I've dealt with many 501 cases where people are being deported because of things like break and enter. Obviously Mm. not a great offence, but not such a horribly serious offence that kind of decent members of the community would think that you should be sent back to your death. Mm. Or in the case of stateless people, indefinitely detained. Yeah. Why is it that they do it? Is it racism? Is it... I, I don't understand why there's just this approach taken to everything. I think it's really political. I mean, Tony Abbott introduced the mandatory revocation stuff in 2014. Yeah. And Peter Dutton's obviously led the charge and he doesn't apply a real exercise of discretion when he's considering these matters. He just rubber stamps mm. refusals and cancellations. And it's something that they have campaigned on really heavily. They, they make political advantage out of being tough on law and order and tough on foreign criminals. I think yeah. it's political. But to what um, public relations advantage... 
I mean, it's not like... I don't hear Peter Dutton coming out at press conferences saying, you guys don't know how good I've been at making sure that foreigners get deported. No, like, he does, mate. He talks about he? it all the time. Absolutely. If you... And I can, I can give you a very specific example, which was a fellow that I acted for, where we ran a bias application against uh, Peter Dutton having made a decision to cancel our visa because he went on Hadley... Okay. Uh, in advance of making the decision yeah. and said, well, this bloke sounds like a real grub, Ray, and I can tell you we take a very hard line on these things. Yeah. Uh, so but unfortunately, it's very hard to prove apprehended bias in the context of administrative decision-making by ministers okay. because the court sort of defer to their political role. But no, they campaign very heavily on okay. this stuff. Say and no it's, more. you know, I mean... So Ray, Ray Hadley and... To, yeah. to the choir. Absolutely. So the choir's hearing it loud and clear. Yeah. I guess I'm just... In the wrong media's landscape. You're not even in the church. No. Under his bubble, it's knocking on the door. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But this is challenging stuff because I can't even imagine Peter Dutton going out on Hadley and saying, "Oh, look, Ray, this person's committed these offences, so we're going to send him back to his death in Syria." Yeah. Like, I think that is a line too far for Peter Dutton. Right. So these cases pose publicly. I mean, a really difficult issue for the government where they are probably just going to have to see the release of these people because the Australian community is not going to accept us sending people back to their death. I mean, unless they change the act. They could change the act. Yeah, along the ultra Teb lines. Yeah, they could no, they can't, the... though. The constitutional implication, I yeah, think, will stop them doing that because yeah. the constitutional implication says you can, only, you can only detain for the purpose of the Migration Act or any other act that yeah. is concerned with immigration matters for the purpose of... Uh, a visa application being processed or removal from Australia as soon as reasonably practicable mm. um, or cognate purposes. So I don't think they can change the Act to allow indefinite detention of people For that are on a discretionary grounds. kind of basis yeah. they've decided not to deport. So it's a very difficult policy question for them. Mm. So this was a produced the body writ. Yep. I've always wondered, because I've not run a habeas, um, does the detainer have to prove that they have the lawful right once you issue, once you issue the summons? That's my understanding, yeah. Yeah, so it's enough to issue the summons and then whoever's holding them has to prove they've got yeah. the lawful right. And I think it would mirror sort of intentional tort law, wouldn't it, Flick, in that sense, that as soon as you prove you're in custody or that you were in custody, so mm. the state to prove that it was lawful. Lawful justification. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So what do you think is going to happen, Stephen, in terms of into the future there's going to be a lot of people released is that no specifics just broad strokes yeah I think people are going to get released Um, however if we got to a situation where the the risk of harm to them is something short of death or the worst forms of harm then you might get to a situation where the government starts to enliven the provisions of the convention where you can deny Asylum on the basis that a person is a risk to the security of the country mm. on the basis of having committed a particularly serious crime and they might try to avoid our international obligations in that way. Maybe they'll introduce another control order regime to deal with this. They might do well. that, actually. That's, that's yeah. another way. Yep. Yeah. Mm. And you can or see... An H- yeah, like yeah. an HRO. Yeah. Mm. something politically... Regime politically HRO oh sorry high risk offenders so these kind of decisions by the Supreme Court that we've discussed in one of our recent episodes about allowing a court to make an order for the continuing detention of a person based on risk 
yeah. principles. There's already a Commonwealth regime. Yeah, I there think, is. As well. there is yeah. yeah, and on the face of it, why could you you could change the risk assessment so that the risk was just any risk that mm. it's so low as to be you know a risk of drive loss disqualifying. Yeah. Mm. So the just high court says same, about that. Same mm. test as five hundred one. It's well, always been a politically sensitive idea, the idea of refugees committing crimes. And we've seen in Australia at various points where that sort of bubbled up in the media and it's been a huge issue in America. And you've seen all the Trump campaigning where, you know, you see the media around families who've been the victims of crime committed by immigrants or refugees being considered to be in a kind of different and worse category and so forth. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if the government does look at some way of dealing with this short of detention, so something that doesn't offend the limb principle but allows them to monitor these people in some way. Perhaps I've just given them the idea. Good one, Manny. <laughs> okay, it's time for that time of the night where we go into... Um, well, Stephen has an anti-cole on mic, uh, of course, and we all get to hear the luscious, succulent... Oh, this is not an ASMR yeah, video, yeah. Steve. All right. Are you COVID safe? <laughs> My mic's hard. Sore throat. Okay, love it. Now, Mr. Emmanuel, the newlywed... Manuel Kirkusheri. I'm going to go home to my wife. Hey. That's my I'm going home to my wife. Congratulations I'm... to you once more. Thank you. Well Thank done. you very much. Um... And we hear it was a beautiful ceremony. Oh, it was. Yeah. Are you allowed to spill the beans on anything? Or oh, It was in this sort of amphitheatre part of Hyde Park. Beautiful. With mm. The fountain going in the background. Claire was wearing this amazing gold sparkling sequined dress Manny. with a with her family tartan with the family tartan oh beautiful across yeah. her shoulder Manny was looking very dapper too in his newly made suit newly made look at you grey yeah. suit yes yeah and nicely done no wig married by Michelle Swift fellow wig of my chambers oh, oh she's a celebrant well done yeah yeah um, so and it was it was fun. I was so nervous for some reason. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not nervous, you know. I can you did stand look up a bit tense when I first arrived and yeah. said good day. You did and look was, a bit tense. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just take yeah, a seat. Yeah, take yeah, a seat. Just yeah. so, whoa, this is like, <laughs> um, which was very surprising, but wonderful. Just a wonderful yeah. experience and a, awesome. something very real in a way that I didn't imagine. So, mate, mm. you fought through that COVID thing and you got it done. Yeah, yeah. It's a better way to do it, frankly. Yeah, yeah, good for you. So when's the Armenian honeymoon going to happen? Well, the war, who knows? Who knows what's happening over there? But whenever COVID, if COVID ever ends and if the war, if Armenia survives. As soon as possible. As soon as possible. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Here, here to that. Felicity Graham, what is your fun thing? My fun thing is I am going to the first birthday party of my niece. Hey! Aurelia Kingsbury, named after me. We share the same middle name. Well, mm. and named after other Kingsbury. women in my family. Aurelia. Aurelia. Love that name. The golden one. Yeah. Kingsbury. Love Kingsbury. that name. Kingsbury. That's my middle name. Oh. Julius Caesar's mother's name was Aurelia. Yeah, right. Okay. Feels so um, sorry for people with strange middle names. <laughs> says Stephen Gingell Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was something hard in growing that. up, wasn't it? <laughs> it wasn't hard for me no, at all. Okay. I love my middle name. It's good. 
It wasn't hard for me either. <laughs> you just didn't tell you. Yeah, so that's, that's why. on Saturday, and I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Ooh. Yeah. Nice Saturday. Nice. Great. Yeah, that counts as a fun thing. Oh, 100% is a fun thing. That's awesome. Now, what's going on in the Western Plains? Uh, mate, two fun things. Okay. Um, two? At about 9.30 p.m. Save them up. Tuesday, the 3rd of November. Yes. When everyone was thinking that Trump had won the election. I put $150 on Biden. Hey! Nice. And got, and got $550 back. Nice one. <laughs> well done. Therefore, wow. you know, being able to gloat and annoy sort of any Trump supporting friends that Can I Can you hate. be taxed on that? No. Mate, I don't think it's taxable, no. no it's a shame. No. Mm-hmm. Um, my other fun thing um, is that Dubbo got a rehab. Congratulations, so cool. Dubbo. Well done. It's yeah. really, really, And this was great. you... Yeah. I mean, pretty much all of you, right? But you were spearheading this for how many years now? Mate, I started campaigning on it five years ago. Yep. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry, longer than that, sorry. I started campaigning on it. I was involved in a so push So we were in Dubbo, what, so 2000 and... Sort of 2013 it started, I think. Yeah. So seven years. Yep, yeah. yep. And then campaigned on it in the 2015 state election, campaigned on it to get on council in 2017, then the council sort of supported it unanimously and yep. we sort of passed various motions and stuff and put some money into a business case and um, offered land for it to be built on and then campaigned on it in the 2019 state election the week after And they that, laughed you out of the electorate, didn't they? they went, oh, man, this f***ing gingle. <laughs> Gingle's got no chance. <laughs> That's what I said, I remember. The week after the election, the feds gave us a $3 million grant to council uh, to sort of contribute to it. And then we were waiting on recurrent state funding, which came last week. So Dubbo's getting a rehab. And so they took all the credit, but it's really your plan. Mate, it's the community. It's been a joint the community. Effort. Effort. Oh, right, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. It's been a lot of people involved. But look, in people who are in the yeah, know, yeah, yeah, know no. that played a pretty important role. <laughs> it's not about me. No, it's not. No. But congratulations, Dubbo. Yes. And the mayoral, deputy mayor. Well done. Uh, what about you, Jim? Uh, Have you got a Jim. fun thing? Okay, yeah. I think our fun thing, or my fun thing, will be the development of a swear jar, and I'm going to start putting in some, I'll put in some beeps, all right, just to appease the annoying family members of the co-hosts here of the show. Just at random times, or when people swear? Yeah, yeah, no, just randomly, just <laughs> chuck them in there. Whenever anybody says wreck or yeah. uh, GBH, I'll put in a... Uh, you know, please explain your acronyms, Wigs, okay? Us plebs here need to know what you're talking about. Be about the citations. Yeah, that's what I should do. That's All right, we're going to work out on my... Look at this guy. And you tell me off. Gingle over here is dropping C-bombs. don't drop the C-bomb. It's ridiculous. <laughs> was not me. Anyway. Not me. Well, it definitely wasn't I would own my C-bomb. Yeah, far out. I'm not that kind of... Uh, <laughs> he's a good guy. okay we are working on those okay the swear jars are coming they're in the mail please put your orders in for this time for Christmas 2021 ladies and gentlemen that was the wigs and I'm out of here before I get sued see you later the wigs is made possible through the hard work of our researchers Anna Kredovich and Eric Zhang thanks for listening please like the wigs on Facebook at the Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Hey, it's Jim Minns here. For the final time, I just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on Twitter at Wigs Podcast. And it is there that you can send us your questions and we'll answer them on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by Minimum Productions, produced by Jim Minns. 